Well, good morning. You can see the uh, message title today and the scripture in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 36. Um, let me just say that I'm, I'm grateful to be here today, thankful. Um, some of you say, uh, do I know you and have I seen you? Well, I grew up in Quincy, and uh, Martha Kirkland is my little sister, and Sam uh, is my nephew, and uh, if you talk to Sam, uh, he'll say, was Uncle Joey there today? So that may be given away right there if you know who I am. And that's what the guys asked me. He said, how do you want us to introduce you as Joe or Joey? I said, well, I've been Joe a long time, but in Quincy and anywhere in the surrounding area, I'm simply Joey. And so Martha is uh, one of my sisters. I have another sister and a brother and their families, and my wife will be here at the 11 o'clock service. And some of our uh, kids and uh, hopefully some of their grandkids will be here and we'll have a great time together uh, at Martha's afterwards as she and Bruce have probably cooked up something great for us to eat. Well, we are in Romans chapter 8 this morning. And uh, when I was ordained in January of 1982, uh, the church presented me with a, a New American Standard Bible that uh, I, in very short order, wore out in a few years because uh, you looked at it, and I, I have it packed away. Uh, we, we moved up just in the middle of May, and we have not got everything out and about, and our, all my office was packed up. And so uh, I have this Bible that was uh, worn, and the leaves are coming out in Romans and in the book of Ephesians. And uh, Romans 8 is probably one of my uh, favorite passages, the whole, whole chapter. And um, when I first went to Wachula years ago, on Sunday night, I started preaching through Romans 8. And I did 26 messages on Romans 8. And uh, I said to one of my deacons one time, I said, I'm not sure what to title this series. He said, why don't we call it From Here to Eternity? So, uh, well, and, and it's true, because you start off in temporary, you move to eternal things. So that's a good title for it. But I want to focus on just a few verses today in Romans chapter 8 and look at questions that Paul asked in verses 31 to 36, where he gives us understanding of what it is for the believer to deal with the sufferings and the issues of pain and difficulties of life. When I was in high school, I remember discovering uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 18, because there, uh, I've used that on occasion in funerals and things, but I read that verse in the Living Bible the first time that I really it caught my eye, and it basically said, the sufferings of this life do not compare with the glory that God has for us in heaven. Something like that. Well, verse 18 is a key verse because it talks about the fact that we are suffering and we do have difficulty, we do have injustice, we do have uh, things that are beyond our understanding, but nothing we have here compares with everything that we will receive there. It doesn't compare. And sometimes it gets very difficult living the Christian life because when difficulties and suffering and problems come, then we start questioning what is God up to? And we can even get discouraged over the circumstances. They can, they can cause us to wonder, what is God's purpose in all of this? And if those things are not dealt with, it, pretty soon the, um, the discouragement can lead us to becoming angry with God. And there are a lot of angry people with God, Christians that are angry with God. And uh, you meet them, I meet them all the time. I, in all my years of pastoring, there are a lot of angry Christians. And uh, usually they, they can't be angry with God uh, tangibly so they're angry with the people of God the church of God or the the man of God 
And so you just walk into a situation and you don't know why someone wants to bite your head off every time you see them because they're angry with God. And so they've been discouraged because the uh, sufferings of life have taken their toll on them. And then they remove, they remove themselves into a place of rebellion where they drop out of church, they drop out of fellowship with God's people, and they sometimes begin to doubt. What is God up to? What is God's purpose? I don't know about this thing called the Christian life. And so as they confess Christ, now they move to a place where they're, they're wandering around and wallowing in doubt. And that's what I want us to see today because Paul addresses those things right here. And what he's told us here already is that suffering is temporary, but he's telling us that the glory God has for us is eternal. And that's what we need to see and understand. Now look at this, this passage I want to show you today in this light. These are not questions for the unbeliever. If a person does not know God, these questions do not really apply to them. These are questions for the believer that has, that has dealt with the, the injustice and the inequities and the corrupt uh, life around them, the governments that come and go and the, the workplaces that come and go and the family issues that come and go. And they wonder sometimes, why are things so hard? Why is there so much suffering and pain? And people that go through situations with their, their health and their, their, um, their life, they just wonder, isn't the Christian life supposed to be easy? Isn't it supposed to be just a bed of roses? And it's not. And so they come to understand the sufferings of life that they didn't think were going to be a part of the Christian life. So these questions are for the believer. And so let me read uh, chapter 8, verse 31 to verse 36 in the New American Standard for you this morning. What then shall we say to these things? God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. So here Paul gives us five questions pretty plainly to help us see that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And he asks us five questions that we as believers need to, to um, grasp and understand. And so here we look at this this morning and we see uh, some very clear things that Paul wants to affirm for us and uh, really they're unanswerable in the sense that they're really rhetorical. They're really not, uh, there's not an answer for them. There's not a, a place where you can really give an answer. There may be an answer, but it's not an answer that really is significant because they're unanswerable questions that he shares with us. He's already affirmed some things uh, about the glory of God and how God has, has, has uh, prepared us for glory and he's predestined us for glory and how he will preserve us for the glory that God has for us. But here he comes to the place and shows us that we need to ask ourselves these questions as believers. When you are in the midst of suffering, pain, difficulty, mystery, misunderstanding, all of these things, these are questions we need to ask ourselves. First one is this in verse 31. Who can be against us? 
Who can be against us? Now, uh, can there really be someone who can stand against what God stands for? Now, we know that's not true, but when elections come and when uh, the economy changes and when markets don't look the same and when health issues come, we sometimes wonder, how, how can God address this? And where is God in the midst of this? But who can be against us? Now, we know that the world, the flesh, and the devil are against us. The Scripture tells us the devil is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And we understand that. We know that the world around us is not friendly to the Christian. Don't get the idea that it is because it never will be. And understand that your, your problem is, uh, like Pogo said, uh, we met the enemy and he is us. Sometimes my greatest issue is not the world and the devil, but it's me. And I have to face the fact that every time I wake up in the morning, my greatest enemy is staring back at me, and that is my own flesh. I come to understand how vile and how, how uh, wretched I am before God. So all enemies without, within, above, and below, none of them can stand against him. So when he uses the word there and says in verse 31, and he says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, he's really saying, since God is for us. Now, this is a believer now, not an unbeliever. God's not for the unbeliever. And uh, there's, a, there's a thing we need to realize here. God is for those who are his children. He is on their side. And uh, we use the term, God loves you. We tell people God loves you. God does love you. God has a great love for us. He wants to see people saved. He wants to see people come to an understanding of him. But the man who's estranged from God is without and is an enemy of God. So when he says, who can be against us? Understand the question is really one you cannot answer. No one can be against us. And so when we wake up and we look at all the things around us that we think can stand against us, realize God wants you to remember, nothing can stand against you. If God is for us, who can be against us? Second question, verse 32, is that um, he says there after he, he paints the picture and says, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, he says, how will he not also with him freely give us all things in other words the fact that christ has done this for us how can god withhold anything god has given you christ why would he withhold anything else he can't do that he won't do that he's not capable of doing that how can god not also with christ freely give you all things now you and i wake up in the mornings and we sometimes think god has changed his mind about us we feel like god may be mad at us about something we feel like God is ignoring us, or God is, is quiet, or his, his ear is turned away from us. But he says here, Paul says, God has given us his son. And Paul's the man who was acquainted with difficulties and, and uh, injustices. He said, God gave his son. Would God then limit his grace and generosity if he, lim if he didn't limit his son? Why would he limit anything else? Why would he limit his generosity? Well, maybe, but he's given us his son. So what is left? For us to deal with that means through the temptations of life and and uh, the scripture reminds us there are temptations to the believer god takes us through that sometimes you feel like you're tempted and no one else is tempted like that well that's what the scripture says no temptation is taking you but it's common to man and i like to remind folks that you think sometimes you're the only one who's ever gone through the situation a lot more have gone through it before you you say well they didn't have the internet they didn't have electricity they didn't have and you go back in time Every man has dealt with every kind of problem. 
They're just, they may be a different context, a different setting, but the same issues are there. And so God takes you through those things and he will give you what you need through temptation. Now, sometimes you may be filled with despair. When Jesus was leaving the earth and was giving the Great Commission, um, he let them know that there was a lot of difficulties in this life. But at the end of Matthew 28, he says in verse 20, he said, I will be with you even to the end of the age. And you say, well, through everything, through everything. And so even through the difficulties and the things that would cause us to despair. And then there are times we need the guidance of God in our life. And he takes us through that time. And uh, he takes us through the comfort of death. And, and oftentimes we think to ourselves that death is one of those things that brings about a sobering uh, a feeling in our, in our heart and our mind. We see loved ones die, parents die, uh, spouses die, children die. And we, we see friends die. And one of the things is, as uh, I've learned through the years about being a pastor is that after a while, you aren't just a pastor. You are, you're doing funerals for your friends. And it's not easy to stand up when you have a, a, a loved one who's gone on to glory and they're a friend and, and you, they've died and you see that and it, it grips you. But God is able to take you through that. He's given you what you need through that time uh, and comfort of death. And he even says in the scripture that it is a glorious, it is a, a, a wonderful thing, a blessed thing when his children come home. And those who believe in the hope of resurrection, it is a glorious thing, even though through the, the eyes of our world we sometimes don't understand. And then there are a lot of questions that come our way, and, and we have a lot of needs that aren't met, that we have a lot of um, answer, questions that aren't answered, and we wonder, what is God doing? And uh, he reminds us that he will give us everything we need according to his riches. He will provide everything for us. He'll supply all of our need, and we need to remember that. Don't compare yourself to everyone else. Don't look at everyone else and say, why is my situation not like theirs? Because it's not. There will always be people that are doing worse than you and folks will be doing better than you. Don't get caught up in the game of trying to compare yourself. Keep your eyes on him and understand that through the, un, the awareness of your unmet needs, God is going to provide everything for you. John Stott, who went home to be with the Lord in the last few years, he said the cross proves God's generosity. So when you think to yourself, uh, I wandered down this lonely road like that song says, no one seemed to care. Understand what Christ did, because on the, on the cross, Christ showed the generosity of God. God did not withhold anything, but freely gave him up for us. Third question. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And here we come to um, verse 33. And here he says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Now, God justifies sinners on the basis of Christ and their faith in Him. God doesn't justify us on the basis of our goodness, our efforts, or, our, or any merit on our part. And so when He says there in verse 33, who can bring a charge against God's elect? Who can, who can do this? No one can do this. God has justified us, not on the basis of the fact that we had no charges against us, but... Um, because Christ died for us. Makes a big difference in that way. And so we come to understand that we are in a courtroom sitting in this in sense, and we move to a place where 
charges have been brought against us. We have um, been declared uh, guilty and uh, legally who can charge us? Well, the devil can stand up and he does and he reminds us uh, with thoughts and, and ideas, uh, people's looks or people's comments that we are, are filled with faults. We're filled with shortcomings. And so uh, we look at all of these things and we wonder, uh, there are a lot of people that charge me. There are a lot of people that indict me, that, that, that come against me and, and, and claim that I'm, I'm not what I should be. And we aren't. But there's an Old Testament story that Zechariah, the prophet, tells of the high priest who was named Joshua. And he said that even during the time when he was being accused by Satan of his filthy garments, that Joshua the high priest stands to offer sacrifice and his clothes are dirty. They're symbolizing his sin. The devil accuses him. Satan accuses him. And Joshua, the high priest, Zechariah, did not say that he tried to come against him and say, well, I've done this or that. He simply said, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. And that's where we have to understand that when the devil says, you're this and you're that, and look at your past, look at what you've done, look at what you've said, look at your relationships, look at your failures, look at your faults. Look at all the things that you've done, and he can bring all these charges against you. God has justified us in Christ. He has wiped away the slate. He has made us clean before him. He has put us in the, in the category of forgiven. And so we can wake up in the mornings, and sometimes we feel unworthy to serve the Lord. And we, we feel like we cannot be his witness. We cannot do his work. And we feel so short of what he requires of us. But we are reminded of the fact that the God of the universe has declared us not guilty. He has justified us. He, not, he did not just simply say, we're going to put this aside. He said, I want you to be my child. And that's a really interesting thing. Wouldn't it be something if you were standing before the court and you had charges brought against you and all you could say was, I'm guilty. And then the judge came down and paid your fine. And then said, I tell you what, not only am I going to pay your fine, but I'm going to make you, make you my child. You're going to go home and live with me. And so it would be a great situation. And that's exactly what God did. He not only paid the fine through Christ, he, he brought us into a uh, new relationship with him. He made us his child. One thing to simply say your, your, your charges are dropped, go free, you might get in trouble. But it's another thing to know that God has received you and made you his child. And that's exactly what he has done. Who shall bring any charge against God in like the highest court in all of eternity has declared us justified before God? Now the fourth question is this. Who is it who condemns? Now this may seem like in verse 34 the same question, but it's really not. Some say verses three and, uh, 30, 33 and 34 are the same th question. But um, question, uh, third question is, as a prosecuting question. Question four is a defense attorney issue. Because in verse uh, 34, he says, who is the one who condemns? And so you have died, and uh, you are in Christ, and he's interceding for you. He's the one who comes along beside you. He's the advocate. He's the counselor. He's the one who lives within you. And you come to understand that his divine law is firm, and all that God has done, he's done for you in Christ. And he puts his Holy Spirit within you. And Jesus is praying for you. He's interceding for you. And what a great thing. And so we see 1 John 2, 1, it says, If anyone sins, he has an advocate with the Father. 
Now, if you were to go to court and you're walking in there and you had, a, you had an attorney, an advocate, uh, legal help, and he was the son of the judge, wouldn't you feel better about your situation? And so John tells us that when we stand before the judge, understand we have an advocate with the Father. It is Christ the Son. So we have someone who advocates for us, who has brought us into a, a relationship with himself. Now this morning I was looking over the scripture and I thought about something Jesus said because it's very pertinent. It's not in your, your uh, PowerPoint or your notes. But when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he tells him very clearly some things. And we're very familiar with verse 16 because we like to say uh, that is such a wonderful reminder of the love of God. He loved the world so much that he gave his son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But what a great verse verse 18 is he who believes in him is not judged but he who does not has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of god and so god tells us when we believe in him we're not judged but the one who does not believe him has been judged so when he asks the question who is he who condemns he's letting us know there are some who are condemned before god there are some who have the wrath of god hanging over them and that is those who are without Christ. The lost man is condemned. The lost man is away from God. He's separated from God. His sin has built a barrier, a wall between him and God. Well, there's a fifth question Paul asks here, and it is in verse 35, and it's simply this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? One question only. And then the second part of that, he gives us the details of what it is you might can answer it with so he says in verse 35 in other words after all these questions who shall separate us from the love of christ who is it that'll separate us then he goes into verse 35 telling us the things that we might think would separate us from the love of christ well tribulation and um tribulation does separate people in their thinking because they think why am i having this much trouble if i'm a child of god Tribulation won't do it. They say, what about distress? And to be sure, you can be filled with distress over all of the things going on in your world. And then he says, or persecution. You know, there are times you are persecuted for being a child of God. And those we should, as the early disciples in, in the book of Acts did, we should glory in the fact that we are persecuted for the sake of Christ rather than cower and say, well, I won't do that again. And then we are persecuted sometimes just because the world does not like us or understand us. So it's for the sake of Christ, make sure it's being persecuted for the right reason. He said, or famine. And uh, I walk through the grocery stores and I'm reminded of how blessed we are as a people because we don't just get to decide whether we want to get an item. We decide which item or which brand of that item do we want to get. And I, I, I see so many folks uh, talking about the, uh, the famine that is coming to America, the shortage of, of this and that and the other, and, and we sometimes can get off on this. And I'll tell you what, um, uh, we re I retired as a pastor full-time in May, and one of the things that um, I had folks ask me, they said, don't you know the market's going down? Don't you know the housing prices are going up? Don't you know it's not a good time to retire? I said, well, I don't, I, don't I don't retire according to that. I don't, I don't move according to that. I move according to faith and, and what God says. And so uh, didn't, didn't, uh, tr didn't trust in those things. 
to uh, steer me. I said, this is what God wants to do. And so we did it. And so we wait on him. And so we're not looking at those things. So you can look at the famine or you can look at nakedness. Um, you can look at peril. He says, what about this? You know, you the dangers of life. Um, what about the sword? I've never suffered under the sword. And he says, none of these things will separate us. There are places around the world where folks suffer through all of these things. There are places around the world we sometimes think, oh, how can people go and be missionaries? There are places, they're, they're so uh, lacking in some of the basics of life. But there are people that love the Lord and serve the Lord and experience the love of God and the, the relationship with God. And they live daily with the famine and the nakedness and the peril and the sword. They live daily with that. And they've not rejected it. They've only embraced the love of God as coming to them. So who shall separate us from the love of God? None of these things can. None of these things will do so. And so we ask ourselves, are these um, the reality in the life of God, the child of God? Yes, they are. Then he quotes in verse 36 something that he took from Psalm 44, 22. He says, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep be slaughtered now why did you stick that verse in there as a believer you are never i'm never exempted from the things he just listed being a believer does not exempt you from persecution or famine or nakedness or peril of sword and so he says listen for your sake for the sake of the lord we are being put to death we are under the sentence of death in this world's eyes all day long we're just like sheep being led to the slaughter we don't even know what's ahead of us we're exposed to the risk of death and like sheep for the slaughter but even this will not separate us from the love of god and so through all of these things we come to understand that it is nothing in the life of the believer that separates us from the love of god now here's what you understand as we kind of close out here um what Paul has listed here, these questions, separates the unbeliever from the believer. And two things come to mind. The lost man's response is one of apathy. Um, he simply says, who cares what God thinks? I don't care what God thinks. I mean, is there a God? And is he powerful? Is he loving? I don't know. And the only time they consider those things is when there's some kind of injustice they like to point their finger at. How can a loving God allow this to happen? How could all those people be killed in that situation? How could this war break out in this place? And on and on they go. And so they're apathetic. Who cares what God thinks? Or they're angry. What are you Christians trying to think about God? What are you trying to think that God is, is showing? Um, how arrogant of you to think you're a special chosen people, blessed people. How arrogant can you be? That's what the lost man thinks. But look, the saying who is saved has to watch out that he cannot be, that he is not confused by the difficulties of life because um, two responses to grace can be totally wrong. One is, is one of license. I can do whatever I want. I'm a child of God. I can live like I want. Well, you can't live like you want, but you can live like you ought. And then the other is um, uh, I can do what I want, license. The other is liberty. I can, I can do as I ought. Um, in Christ so we have to be careful that we don't just do what we want but we live as we ought in Christ and the liberty that Christ gives and God's Spirit gives liberty helps us to live in such a way that we show the world that we are free in Christ and so don't get caught up in um, the responses of the 
believer that can confuse the world. The world doesn't understand us, so don't try to uh, explain things to them sometimes that they don't understand. They don't understand uh, when you talk about the things of God and the things of the Scripture. Uh, they don't, it doesn't mean anything to them. But here's what we want to see in closing. When we say God loves us and cares for us, He does. But when He, he saves a person, He justifies a person. He makes them a part of His family. What He does is, is a miraculous thing. It is an unusual thing because what He's doing is He's taking those who are against Him and those who were sinners those who were enemies, those who were rebels, and he's making them a part of his family. You see, we sometimes get the idea that there's these poor sinners wandering around out here that are just, we just got to go and, you know, we're just, we're, convince them. No, you can't convince them. You have to go and help share a message of hope and life and, and the restoration and the, and the resurrection hope with them. And when God works in them, many of them have a clenched fist in the face of God. Many of them are walking their own way and doing their own thing. They have no regard, no thought for God. That's why on Sunday mornings you can see anybody and everybody headed in any direction except to the house of God, to worship with God's people, because they have no regard for God. But God demonstrates, Romans 5, 8 says, demonstrates, he shows, he um, makes it clear his own love for us. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't say while we were lovable. Some of you might get the idea God saved you because you were lovable. Your mama might love you, but you weren't very lovable. And she can overlook a lot of things. God saved us while we were yet sinners what does that mean while we were enemies while we were estranged while we were mad while we were angry while we were pushing him away just like a, a drowning man trying to fight off his his uh, rescuer and god demonstrated his love he saved us by christ dying for us this can be a very divisive thing but it should be a very decisive thing and so today if you're a believer these questions are for you you need to understand what God is saying here and understand that God is pointing out here who can be against us? How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who is he who condemns? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Let's pray together. We rejoice, Father, today that your children have a sure and certain hope and we rejoice today that you are the God who has reached down to your children and done far beyond what we can imagine or understand. Help us to, to realize that through the, the sufferings and the difficulties and the, the pains and the misunderstandings and the injustices of life, we can count on the God who is for us. I pray, Father, for those who are without you today, who don't know you, who've who've sort of turned you off in their mind, and maybe they're here because of habit or because of family or some other reason, but they need you. And you've shown them today their need for you. And so I pray, Father, you would help them to come under that conviction that only your spirit can do and do the work of changing and transforming to trust you and you alone. We thank you for this time today to look into your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing, and then if you have any questions later, you'd like to come down, there'll be some folks here ready to talk with you about what it means to know the Lord. Or if you need to be confirmed in your, 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 your quest for who God is in your life as a believer, you respond to Him.